All right, let's um, open up. Are there any other announcements? No? Okay. Should I make some up? So. All right, let's open up, please, to the 23rd, 23rd Psalm. One of the best known, if not the best known Psalm, and certainly one of our favorites, and with good reason. Father, we are so grateful for this time together, and we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us, to cause your word to come alive in our hearts and minds today. I pray, Lord, that we each individually enjoy a very real encounter with Jesus Christ, that he emerges from the pages of Scripture, uh, a reality, a reality in the now, in each of our lives. In his name we pray, amen. Psalm 23, I want us to read now, we're reading probably each, well, many of us from different translations. I'll be reading from the uh, NASB, but let's read it aloud together, even though there may be some differences between the translations we're reading. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's easy to see why that is a favorite psalm, isn't it? Doesn't it suggest a life of extraordinary peace and quietness and rest? All of which seems very real and within our reach, within the confines of the sanctuary among this group of people. But once we pass through those doors, life seems a little more dicey, doesn't it? And this reality and the promise it holds for us seems much more remote. And it's very easy once we pass through those doors and we're engaged in the rough and tumble of daily life to live in a manner that's no longer reflective of these truths. And rather than our lives being uh, filled with peace and quietness and rest, there are lots of anxious moments. Certainly there's a lot of wonderful times, but there's anxious moments, and we're troubled, uh, troubled by what decision do I make? What, what direction does my life take? What do I do right now? How do I handle this situation? If you're a parent, you have lots of opportunities to ask those questions. Um, life is full of challenge, and so when we read a psalm, such as Psalm 23, it may be difficult to imagine how that could practically be realized in our lives. But it can be, 
and it ought to be. It's not, it's not written in a fashion um, that suggests something that is not possible. It's not idyllic. It's, it is suggesting to us the very real possibility that we can enjoy that sort of peace, that sort of intimacy with him, and that, that kind of rest and quietness in our souls daily. What is it, though, that allows something like that to become meaningful uh, and real to us day by day? Look with me, if you would, please, at James, the fourth chapter. We do have to radically reorient our perspectives and reorder our lives and priorities. James 4. Let's begin with verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? It's just proper planning. Right? I have my five-year plan, making progress, updated every year in my dreams. Um, I don't, do we even have five-year plans? I don't think even most businesses have five-year plans. Now we have five-year wish lists, but it's such a fluid environment that they're being updated constantly. Uh, I think that's why strategic planning has probably replaced long-term planning. Um, It seems reasonable. It seems like a rational approach to life. Have a plan. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but he, he... continues in such a fashion that casts that sort of thinking uh, in a bad light. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Larry, this is supposed to be encouraging. We're giving you a few minutes of our busy week. Please don't say something discouraging to us. That You've just thrown my whole life into question now. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And on that note, I'm going to close this morning's message. (laughs) God bless you all. Um, (laughs) That strikes us initially as something less than good news. Wow. So I guess what you're saying is I should begin the day um, embracing the reality that I may not be here tonight. That is not really what's being suggested. This isn't really imposing on our joy. It's not suggesting that life is so uncertain that each day when you leave the house, you should embrace your wife and children as if you will never see them again. That could really get tedious. Darling, oh, I love you. And if I don't come back tonight, remember, you are always the one. Children, they would flee. (laughs) Uh, No, but it is explaining, I think, something critical with regard to the arc of our lives. It's very easy to view our, the arc of our lives in a very truncated fashion that lacks the sort of context that God wishes us to enjoy. If God knew you, and we know that he did or does, 
before he laid the foundations of the earth, that means at least in the mind of God, you existed before time itself. And we who have passed from death unto life through Jesus Christ will live throughout all of eternity. If the arc of your life isn't, a, isn't tracking along that continuum, it's very difficult to view it as anything that isn't truncated or horribly compartmentalized. And the manner in which we approach his leadership and decision making is, is going to almost certainly um, disallow the sort of peace and quietness and rest that we read about in the 23rd Psalm. Practically speaking, realistically speaking, if we're not viewing life in that fashion, it's going to be very difficult for the Lord to genuinely be our shepherd. A shepherd leads the sheep. The sheep find comfort in the rod and staff. And what is a rod and a staff used for? Direction and protection. And maybe, you know, when this board, maybe the shepherd uses it as a four iron. I don't know. Um, but it provides direction and protection. But if that's not the context of our lives, uh, generally we will be the chief decision makers. The Lord will not be our shepherd. We're measuring our lives against a different sort of metrics. And uh, it does not allow for peace. In fact, as the years start stacking up, peace becomes far more elusive. I remember when our children were, were uh, in their teenage years and were approaching the, you know, graduating high school, I would wake up suddenly at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. Have I done it all right? Did I beat them enough? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Have I done it all right? Have I taught them well? Have I modeled for them the sort of life in Christ that they can... That, that they could and would want to uh, replicate in their own lives. And, of course, that was it. I, uh, I was, I'd slip quietly out of bed and head to my study because I was not going to close my eyes again that night. Um, if, we, if we measure success, if we consider our lives within the context of that passage of time that occurs between our birth and our death, we'll be viewing life from a perspective that doesn't contribute to that peace. It doesn't embrace the Lordship of Christ on a practical level in our daily decision-making. And it is fraught with so much fear and anxiety because you are continually wondering uh, if your choices are going to work for you or if they're going to work against you. Did you make the right choice? Did you make uh, a, raw, a, a right choice or a wrong choice? It seems like such a gamble suddenly, and your life becomes full of anxiety. That's not God's best. Look with me at uh, Romans, the 12th chapter, or just, just write this down. We find in Romans twelve eleven saints who overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and because they loved not their lives unto death. That's a remarkable statement. We place a great deal of emphasis on life right now, don't we? For most of us, that's 
really where it's at. The idea that our lives stretch beyond this moment and into eternity just doesn't occur to us a great deal on a daily basis. It doesn't enter into our practical considerations. And yet, it should. God is working in us his eternal purpose. If you read through scripture, you'll discover the narratives that occur there, particularly among the characters we know so well, their lives rarely progressed uh, in linear fashion. The path they took to get where God wanted them to be was often torturously circuitous, wasn't it? It took so long, but God was working in them, his eternal purpose, fashioning them for a life that stretches beyond this moment into eternity. There's a different set of values that attend that approach to life. Our Western values are going to have to be largely shelved, I think. There's a different metric that we need to apply to determining success and uh, good living in this life now. John 6, turn with me there, please. Uh, John, the sixth chapter. We find in this gospel um, a unique feature to uh, an event that's recorded in each of the gospels. Jesus sends the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They begin rowing. They row all night long. They're making very little progress. Have you ever felt as if you were getting very little traction in your life? You were just stuck someplace? That can be very frustrating, can't it? And frightening. They were stuck. They were, they were going nowhere. Then Jesus comes walking to them on the water. They were alarmed by this. They thought perhaps it was a spirit. Verse uh, 20, he said to them, Jesus, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is an extraordinary event. In other words, when Jesus stepped into the boat, they were translated. They were instantly on the other side of the lake, on the opposite shore, ready there to meet a man with whom uh, Jesus had a divine appointment, the madman of Gadara, the demoniac that Jesus delivered. The disciples were, were getting nowhere fast. They weren't gaining any traction. When Jesus stepped into the boat, the Lord of time and space, who lives within time and space but lives beyond time and space, demonstrated he was Lord over time and space and compressed events in such a way that they were suddenly where they needed to be when they needed to be there. I am thrilled that the Lord who is my shepherd is the Lord of time and space. That he can compress events in such a way that if my heart is after him and I am following after his will for my life, I don't have to worry necessarily about each moment that it may not appear that I'm gaining traction. As long as peace is ruling in my heart, that I am where I am supposed to be, God is working out the infinite number of details that, that uh, need to be arranged just so for his will to be affected in my life. I, during that time, can simply rest in him.
turn with me to Romans the eighth chapter. After after looking at that, I find um, verses like Romans eight twenty eight particularly compelling. Romans eight verse twenty eight, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a comforting verse of scripture. But what we can unwittingly do is view God suddenly as, uh, uh, his work rather, as a salvage effort in our lives. I mean, I enjoy making good choices, don't you? But I really, really, really dislike making poor choices, particularly when I have an audience. But we make poor choices from time to time, even though we thought at the time, well, this is brilliant. This is, this, is, this, is the, this is the choice. Could there be any other choice? And about six months later, you realize, actually, yes, apparently there were several others. <laughs> or it may just turn on a moment. You know, you made the bad choice to make a remark that was best kept private. <laughs> Or you said something in a way that hurt someone else. It caused them pain. Our lives are full of choices. How do we reconcile um, bad choices with the fulfillment of God's will and purpose for our lives? He is the God of over, the Lord of time and space. This verse is suggesting that God is not mounting a salvage operation. It suggests that God in his omniscience and in his omnipotence with his manifold wisdom has foreseen every decision that you will ever make, good, bad, or indifferent, has foreseen every event that will unfold within your life and has already folded that into his purpose for your life so that everything is engineered for your good and to the effect of his will and purpose in your life. Does that give you some uh, peace? Some rest? That doesn't mean, that, oh, well, that's fantastic. I can just make, I can do anything I want now. I can make uh, flippant choices with abandon. I've got it all covered. That's not what's suggested here. It's suggested those who have a heart after him who love God and are called according to his purpose, will enjoy uh, this redemptive grace at work in their lives. I think it's critical that we understand that if we are going to embrace uh, the Lord as our shepherd on a practical level day by day. The idea that my life, the arc of my life begins in eternity past, and stretches forward into eternity future. I was born 57 years ago. This is amazing to me. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, but I, uh, 57 is the new 25, at least that's what I say. <laughs> um, but 57 years ago, I was born along the banks of the St. John's River. I was born 57 years ago. I don't think about that event. 
To me, it's not consequential other than I entered the stage at that moment. But I don't reflect back on that moment often, even on my birthday. Though there won't, we're not measuring eternity with time, I think it will cease to exist. Still, for our purposes this morning, for sake of argument, a million years from now, it will be as heaven has just, as if heaven has just begun for us. I can't imagine that a million years from now, I'm going to be reflecting back on this brief moment of time that James explains is but a vapor. Here, for just a moment, it's so ephemeral, it can hardly be measured. I don't think that I'm going to be giving a great deal of thought a million years from now to these few years here. Are they consequential? Sure, they mark our passage into the kingdom of light. We were, we were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. But because God is working his eternal purpose in us, because he'll be revealing his grace to us throughout all the ages of eternity, this is not that defining. And yet you would think from the way most of us approach life that everything matters most about right now. What matters most about this moment is one single thing. Am I doing what God wants me to do now? Am I in the place God wants me? It may not track well or precisely with my plans, but do they coincide with his plans? As I said, I'm 57. I spent nearly 20 years in the pastorate before coming here. And that's why halfway through my message, I look at my watch, figure how many more minutes can I remain speaking without everyone fleeing? Um, I spent a number of years after pastoring, I served as a, a church growth consultant and worked in revenue development for churches and nonprofits around the country. And then God dealt with me in prayer, began dealing with me um, very specifically in prayer that I was to begin transitioning to um, business, to work in the marketplace, which I thought was, was interesting. Uh, and not only the marketplace, but in China. And I thought, well, I have a vivid imagination, so it's probably nothing more than that. But it was persistent, and I received a phone call from a gentleman that I had uh, done, I did consulting work occasionally for business, and I had done work for his uh, businesses in Venezuela. And he phoned me and said, I'm launching a, a new company here. Our manufacturers will be in China. I'd like you to negotiate our agreements and run the company for me. Hmm. Well, let me pray. I prayed for a number of weeks and had peace. And now, okay, this is what God was dealing with me. But I did that for a while. And then it transitioned from one um, business opportunity to another. And I kept wondering, when do I return to vocational ministry? When do I return to vocational ministry? It was helpful. Uh, I mean, I began to see things uh, from the perspectives of the, the pew rather than the pulpit, which was very helpful. It did not shorten the length of my service, my sermon, surprisingly. Sorry to report that this morning. <laughs> um, 
But it was, it was helpful, but I discovered that God was enlarging my platform for ministry because I could speak uh, into the lives of, of certain men and women who really never darkened the door of a church. Um, <clears throat> then we were part of the charismatic movement all of our adult lives, and we really became disenchanted with so much of the movement. It just seemed to go off the rails, frankly. And the theology was becoming suspect, and there were things happening during services that just, it seemed as if they had removed 1 Corinthians 14 from their Bibles and discarded it and said decency and order is not really something we need to be attentive to. And I thought, you know, if I can't invite someone to a service <clears throat> without giving them assurances <clears throat> and an explanation afterwards that no, we were not visiting an asylum, something was probably wrong. And God began dealing with us about attending St. Andrews. Now, the charismatic movement had as its epicenter, probably for its first dozen years, from about 1958 or 1960 through the 70s, the mid-70s at least, had as its epicenter the Episcopal Church. And um, a, wonderful, a wonderfully sound and, and robust, rich theology regarding the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> And I read the books, Nine O'Clock in the Morning by Father Dennis Bennett, Miracle and Darien by Father Terry Fulham. <clears throat> I got a chance to meet him in Washington and then interview him later on television. Um, they Speak Whether the Tongues by John and Elizabeth Sherrill, Episcopalians. These were books that drove the charismatic movement. And, and I felt a special kinship uh, to that, but I never imagined I would uh, become Anglican. When we attended here, started attending here, we found oh my gosh, this is such sound and rich theology. We're so enjoying it. But it was spirit-filled. We felt the presence of Jesus when we came here. And the prayer team was ministering at the gifts of the Spirit. People were experiencing miracles. And I thought, this is fantastic. So we settled in. Now, after a, you know, a few weeks, when it came to the liturgy, I was like, oh my gosh, this is tedious. <laughs> Could it be any more redundant? And I thought, okay, the Lord has, has planted us here, so I'm going to discover Jesus in that. And I did. And now it's an enriching and wonderful part of my worship, um, which is a real surprise to me. But it is, uh, it, at Gordon-Conwell, I'm on the Anglican track, one of the courses dealt with the Book of Common Prayer, and I was at the point of tears so many times during that uh, class, it's a professor related, it's history and it's, it's, it's rich theology. And, you know, Cranmere, who, who wrote, essentially, the Book of Common Prayer, was a martyr for that. Um, it's extraordinary. Well, after a bit, God begins dealing with me about transferring my orders. Now, that was a real surprise. And I thought, boy, oh boy, I have never envisioned myself as an Anglican priest. I don't, is that going forward or going backwards? And uh, meanwhile, the clock is ticking. I'm now in my mid-50s, and I'm thinking, hmm, let's choose one of the fastest, most uh, vibrantly growing denominations in North America. And I couldn't find the Anglican Church anywhere on the list. <laughs> but something is happening in North America through the Anglican Church. It is wonderful. There's a groundswell, I think. But at any rate, I thought, okay. Then Father Ron began dealing with me about transferring my orders. 
But I was dragging my feet, and Father Russ Park, you remember Father Russ? I so enjoy his ministry. He was here and uh, shared a bit of his own history. He was Baptist in England, I think along the lines of Spurgeon, and uh, he and his wife were part of the charismatic movement there, and uh, God began dealing with him about transferring his orders to the Church of England, which is, of course, part of the Anglican Communion. And in his position, that was anathema. That would have been like a Southern Baptist uh, a pastor going into his wife and saying, say, I, I think we're gonna, I'm going to become a Roman Catholic priest. <laughs> and that was her response. In fact, she said, Russ, this could be trouble for our marriage. <laughs> and so he shelved it. Well, a new a bishop uh, moved into that diocese and began having a recurring dream, going to a home at a particular address and telling this man, God told me you're to become a, a Church of England priest. This was apparently uncharted territory for the bishop. He never had this experience. Eventually, he did just that, and it was Russ Parker's home. Long and short of it is, Russ obviously became a, a Roman, I mean, not a Roman Catholic priest, a Buddhist monk. No, <laughs> he became an Anglican uh, priest, and, uh, and it's been such a, 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 a enriching... <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, I always laugh at my own jokes if no one else does. Um, <laughs> I'm going to lose my point here. Um, okay, so he was here ministering, and I shared with him, oh, here's where I am, Russ, I, and, I, and I'd like to just chat with you about it. And he said, well, let's go back here and pray. And we went into the library, and he was praying, and he stopped abruptly, and he looked up at me, and he said, you have heard from the Lord. In fact, you've heard so much from him that if you fail to follow through with this, it will prove to be your undoing. Well, he had my attention. <laughs> that lodged in my thoughts and stayed put. And then he said, what I have, or rather what God has um, placed in you during your journey, you're to bring into the Anglican Communion. And I said, all right, thinking he finished praying. Well, I became much more focused on, on um, moving through the process, which eventuated in, in being ordained uh, here. We were visiting um, Catherine out near Seattle on Whitby Island. And uh, I was walking along the shorelines. And if you've been to the Puget Sound, you know that rather than white sandy beaches, <coughs> the shores are covered in millions of small stones. And it, it's very beautiful in its own way. Um, so I was walking along it with shoes on. <laughs> and uh, I was alone. Uh, uh, Beth and I think Matthew was with us and Katie, they were uh, farther back. And I was, um, I was on point making sure everything was safe. <laughs> But I was conversing with the Lord and, and revisiting the idea of, at that time, I, I had gone to Bible college, but I had now to enroll in graduate school at, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And I thought, God, I lived a few miles from Gordon-Conwell. They have a Jacksonville campus now. Its primary campus is in, in Boston. And I thought, I had friends who were attending there. I, I could have attended there 30 years ago. Why didn't I become Anglican 20 or 30 years ago? I am in my mid-50s, and I'm sitting in seminary. Grandpa, 
sitting in this class, and I'm enjoying it thoroughly. I had wanted to go for a long while, but each time I uh, made steps in that direction, I was given pause. So I didn't. Then suddenly God said, go. I thought, okay, did you forget about me? <laughs> I'm doing this now. God has his purposes. Now, fortunately, there are some other men uh, my age or approaching my age, some a little older. There's one orthopedic surgeon who's retired 72 as a classmate. So when I get around him, I'm like, you old guys. <laughs> and at 72, he thinks 55 is really, or 57 now is quite young. But 57 is the new 25, as I said. So 72 will be next 30, I think. Um, but here I am. I said, Lord, why? Why why now? Why not then? And as I'm walking along, I heard clearly and with such love and force, because I am working in you, my eternal purpose. Now, as soon as that sounded in my heart, I looked down and at the toe of my right foot, there was a small black stone. It was washed over with water, so it was quite brilliantly black. And etched in it was a small white cross. And I thought, what a lovely, sweet token of goodness and kindness that was. Because that is the story of the cross. It is God's redemptive work and his eternal purpose being wrought in Christ and through Christ in us. And so I keep this on my desk, and whenever I'm tempted to say in the middle of, for instance, writing a paper or piling through a thousand pages, <laughs> that's right, God's working his eternal purpose. That's why I'm doing this now at 57 years of age, <laughs> because time is tracking along a much longer arc than I had considered before. And as long as I'm doing what God wants me to do right now, then I'm doing what I ought to be doing. Is that helpful? Very good. Um, very good. If you'd have said no, I'm not sure what I would have done. <laughs> How do you repair that at this point? Matthew, the sixth chapter. <laughs> Matthew chapter six. We're, we, are, we are nearing the close. Matthew 6. <laughs> Let's begin with uh, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Uh, and then he shares this old Hebrew idiom regarding greed and, and stinginess and generosity. But let's skip to 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's a crucial point. And it's easy to, to read over that and continue on with our lives as if very little has been said. There is very little in this life that mimics God so effectively than money. It seems to offer security, a sense of well-being, 
confidence, status. It seems to offer all of these things. Of course, it's horribly deceitful. In reality, it can offer none of those things. But it appears to. And we can place great, great trust in it. If we are measuring our lives by the metrics, especially of Western culture, it's going to be very, very difficult for you and I to track along successfully with God's plan for our life. It will meet so much resistance in our regular decision-making. Verse 25, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? He continues through this, explaining that God is not opposed to these things, but he explains at the end that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. That means they come as an addition to our lives. They beautify our lives. They are genuinely a blessing. But if we pursue them rather than God and his kingdom, they rob our lives of something beautiful and irreplaceable. On just a practical level, we can, we can find ourselves um, taking shortcuts ethically, making decisions that uh, serve our interests rather than the interests of others, and do not track well with God's plans and purposes. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now what he did not say, and let, everyone look up here please. Let me tell you what he did not say. He did not say seek only. He said, seek first. This is to be our master passion. It rules all of our choices. There's nothing wrong with pursuing things God puts on your heart, but they remain secondary and tertiary. Our first priority, our first passion is to seek first the kingdom of God, his rule and reign in our lives and in the earth around us and his righteousness. And if we do that, then he blesses our other efforts. He prospers the work of your hands. Um, as we prepare to close, at last, uh, turn with me to Philippians, the fourth chapter, please. How do we do this on a practical level then? Philippians chapter four. How do we do this on a practical level? How do we allow the Lord to serve as our shepherd, to follow him closely and carefully day by day? Beginning with verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. We remain centered in his reality in our life, in the reality of his invisible kingdom. We boast in the Lord, we rejoice in him always, making the point certain Paul repeated, again I say rejoice. We remain mindful of God, his reality, the reality of the invisible God and his invisible kingdom, moment by moment, day by day. If we do that, we're able to then obey this next command, which, again, can be very challenging. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit, your selflessness, your unselfishness be made known to all men. The Lord is near. How many of us have learned as we were growing up, the message communicated to us was it is a dog eat dog world out there. Take care of number one. And that plays out, can play out so viciously in the work environment, can't it? The, the, the palace intrigue that unfolds there, the, the, the office politics can be so ugly. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, you put others before, in fact, a couple of verses or a couple of chapters back, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Let's look at that very quickly, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How do we get ahead in this life? By putting other people before us. A little paradoxical, but that's the way God wants us to live. If we're genuinely seeking first the kingdom, we can afford to put other people first. Their interests beyond our own, considering their interests more important than our own, considering them better than ourselves, assuming... um, the attitudes and motivations of a servant. We cannot do that unless we believe the Lord is at hand. That if I promote others, God will promote me. If I promote the interests of others, God will promote my own interest. All the while working something wonderful in me that comports with his eternal purpose. And, and finally, uh, to make certain this happens on a practical level, when I do encounter anxiety, I immediately release it to God in prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's a very practical um, strategy for embracing Psalm 23 uh, in our lives. On a practical level, embracing the lordship of Jesus so that he is our shepherd day and night, carefully, lovingly leading us and guiding us along the way that he's prepared for us. I hope this is helpful to you. Father, we are so um, grateful for your Holy Spirit And we pray now that he would cause this word to come alive in our hearts, to give us understanding, to know how we might um, better apply it to our lives each day, and that he would supply grace sufficient, Lord, to obey it. We do believe that you are at work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we rejoice in that knowledge, Lord, and it comforts us so greatly. We thank you for your goodness and kindness, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let's see, I have not, I said this for the first time in first service. Um, This is not the part I have practiced. Huh, say it. Oh, that's it. (laughs) 
Let your, oh, there it is right there. Thank you. <laughs> Duh. Let your light so shine. I, I, see, I wouldn't have even had to let on that I didn't know it. Let your light so shine before men <laughs> that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.